morning, Village Church. We're in Acts chapter 9 this morning, and if you think you had a rough time on the road this morning, wait till you hear what happened to this guy, Saul. It's such a dad joke. Uh, <laughs> the rough start. My name is David. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's good to be with you. If you're new here, we're really glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, if you've been here uh, for many years, we're glad you're here too. And uh, we got our youth kids here, first Sunday of the month. Welcome. Glad you guys are here. And uh, yes, I know you guys go to Denny's before you come here, so stay alive, and uh, I will do the same. This morning, uh, we see this guy Saul and his radical transformation, and later he will be known more famously as the Apostle Paul. And this isn't um, the typical like biblical name change, uh, like the changing of Abraham, where, where God gives you a new name in an instant, and you're no longer called by your old name. Acts 9 is commonly misinterpreted this way. Um, Saul and Paul are kind of just variations of the same name. We have Saul, which is the more Hebrew name, and, and Paul, which is the more Greek name. And Saul would be the, the common Hebrew version. It's what Jesus uses in, in this text. But as he begins his ministry to the Gentiles, he uses the more Greek version of his name, which is Paul. And Luke, who is writing Acts, uses the names interchangeably. Even later into Acts, you'll see that well after this event takes place. And so we'll use both of them interchangeably this morning. And maybe as we read, the Lord's going to put it on your heart to start using a more Greek name yourself, like Spartacus or Heroditus or Giannis Antetunko, whatever, you know? And I hope you will be open to how the Spirit uh, might lead you in that, okay? This is, that's between you and the Lord, but we're going to get going. Verse 1, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So we're still in Jerusalem at this point. This likely takes place just a few years after Jesus returns to heaven. And we know Caiaphas was still the high priest until AD 37. So Saul is seeking authority from Caiaphas to go to the Jewish communities at Damascus. And Damascus was an important town. It was about 150 miles away from Jerusalem. It had a large Jewish population. And the Roman Empire granted the Jews the ability to extradite their own people for trial if they fled Jerusalem to other cities. The ancient historian Josephus records the, the words of Julius Caesar actually declaring this in, in 47 BC, granting the privilege specifically to the high priests of Jerusalem and, and those living in Judea. I'm not sure exactly what, what it was said, but just paraphrasing, I'm guessing Caesar said something like, okay, uh, new decree high priest Jewish guy, he can do whatever he wants, okay? Pretty simple. Also, you should try this new salad that I came up with, right? <laughs> so the church continues to grow, and, and those who believe in Jesus as the Messiah have been given this new name. We see it here. We're going to see it a little bit more later. Is those belonging to the way, and it's a description that becomes attached to Christians throughout the book of Acts and beyond, and Saul has now dedicated himself to hunting these people down. And if we look at Acts, only you know, just recently, we were just in chapter 8, he's actually really good at it, right? We, he's, he's become very good at this. We saw this in chapter 8. It said, and Saul approved of his, this is Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is a brutal persecution being led by Saul. Looks similar to the persecutions we imagine happening later under Nero, right? But happening under the Jewish leaders, dragging people out of their homes, men and women. Later in Acts 29, Paul will speak before King Agrippa, and he gives his own testimony of this event and describes this time in his life. Acts 26, verse 11, And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. It was Paul himself, his own testimony. I was fueled by rage against the Christians. And where does the rage come from? Why is he so threatened or offended by Christ's followers? We get this insight when Paul shares his testimony in Acts chapter 22, when he's arrested in Jerusalem in the temple, and he asks if he could speak to the people. He says, I am a Jew, born of, Tar born of Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. And again, in Acts 26, verse 5, he declares, according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And so the picture you have here is that Paul was a, a self-righteous, religious zealot. And he was convinced that he was defending God himself. And of course, he could not have been more wrong, right? You can imagine the human heart that dedicates their entire life to religious purity and, and legal training and, and bodily discipline, taking the time to memorize the scriptures. You spend your life believing deeply that when the Messiah comes, he's gonna wanna walk straight up to me. He's gonna wanna shake my hand. He's gonna wanna say, well done, you know? Imagine living like that. And here, are all these foolish people, largely working class, fishermen, farmers, uneducated, sinful, and they're being told by the followers of Jesus that they can have their sins forgiven just by believing in faith. And they think that somehow God can just be pleased with them just like that. You can see how offensive that would be for the religious person. This is why Paul writes later in 1 Corinthians that the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews, right? Because the gospel is like a, like a flaming meteor that's on a collision course with your own pride, right? The gospel does not care how much you know, how much you have achieved, or how much you are better than everyone else. And he thought he was better than everyone else, right? And so Saul, my, like most Jewish religi religious leaders, says, I cannot accept this and he's on his way to Damascus and his feet are physically on the way to Damascus but in a much greater sense Saul is on his way to hell right and the pride of his heart is carrying him straight to hell and the road to Damascus this story in many ways is my story and it's your story right it's all of our story we were all on a foolish road to our own destruction and God encountered us yes amen what happens next? Verse 3. Look with me. It says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. 
And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. The famous line, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We see here in verse 4 something that Jesus taught his disciples earlier while he was on earth. He says, one day the king will say, you visited me in prison, you fed me, you clothed me, and God's people will say, Jesus, we never did any of these things. It might have been like Uber Eats or DoorDash, I don't know. Matthew 25, 40. And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. That's what Jesus says, right? And so verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus returns to heaven all the way at the beginning of Acts. He's been in heaven for years now. I mean, assuming he's counting time like we are, but he's not, okay? But he's back, he is physically on the throne, right? He, he, he's speaking to Saul here on the road, the voice of Jesus in heaven is a voice of Jesus who is not physically experiencing any persecution in his own body. He is glorified forever in heaven. But again, you see the deep intimacy between the people of God and God himself, right? The, the bride of Christ is united with Christ through the cross. And therefore, if you are persecuting God's people, you are persecuting God himself. And if you're treating God's people with love, you're treating God with love, right? That's what we believe. Look again at verse 3. The salvation of Jesus Christ comes to us while we are on our way. It says, now as he went on his way. I think something we see really clear in this text this morning is that the salvation of God is not discovered by our righteous seeking it interrupts our sinful plans, right? The salvation comes to us as an interruption of our selfishness. Saul didn't figure out Jesus. He didn't study the Torah and obey the law to the point of discovering the truth by his great wisdom. He didn't compare his notes to the words of Jesus and give him like the stamp of approval and then surrender his life to the gospel mission, right? He didn't know God. He just thought he did. But the gospel awakens our hearts to see our brokenness. John Calvin, in his commentary on chapter 9 here in Acts, he speaks about this moment. And this is what he said. He said, this is surely the most excellent mercy of God in that that man is reclaimed unto salvation contrary to the purpose of his mind. He's brought to salvation. He meets face to face with God. Salvation comes to him contrary to the purpose of his mind. He woke up that morning with a very different purpose. And God reveals himself. And the men, it says, are left speechless, of course. Right? Jesus says, rise and enter the city. You'll be told what to do. And now Paul, who was the, the one running the show, is physically blind. He has to be led by other men. The weakness instantly. Just from seeing Christ one tiny glimpse, he 
He's now physically blinded. And so guess who's not in charge anymore? <laughs> that would be Saul, right? Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. That's a good idea. And the Lord called straight. <laughs> and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. <laughs> That's a lot of good stuff there, yeah? So here we find Ananias. Ananias is a godly man. We learn later in Acts 22. This is not the Ananias of chapter 5 who's struck down. We have Ananias here. He's a bit hesitant, right? You can imagine. You see a little bit of hesitancy here, right? He's like, so just real quick, um, I just want to run one more thing by you. The name of the guy again. Was that Saul of Tarsus by chance? Because that's going to be a no for me. Right? <laughs> I got a weird feeling about it. I don't know if it's just I, I got something against guys named Saul, or maybe it's because he's a notorious, bloodthirsty murderer. Just something feels not, not right with me. A Christian man like Ananias at this time in history would be well aware that he could be killed for his faith. This doesn't mean he's a fool trying to get himself killed, right? But ultimately, God gives the command, and Ananias says, all right, we get this incredible picture here of, of Ananias fearing God and not man. He's willing to stand face to face with a man who wants to murder him if the alternative would be to say no to God, right? This is choosing the fear of the Lord over the fear of man. The Bible talks about this a lot, right? I think this is how we should think, right? I don't fear living in a world full of evil. I don't fear a future where I could be hated by people around me for my faith. What I fear most of all is that I would know the gospel and I would not obey Christ in all things. Right? I fear a life of trying to tiptoe around the cultural mobs so that I can please everyone and, and it's just enough to keep my career and, and keep all my friendships, even if it means I'll miss out on the mission God has for me. It's really clear in Scripture that the fear of man is far more dangerous to God's people than anything that could come in this earth, right? I can imagine that most people in this room have spent some point in the last month thinking about what it must be like to be a Christian living in Afghanistan right now, yeah? Probably spent some time just closing your eyes and praying and thinking about this. And There's a lot of Christians, including many pastors and ministry leaders, living in Afghanistan weeks or a month ago or maybe currently, who had some very difficult decisions to make last month, right? Imagine thinking, do, do I try to escape and get on a plane, if possible, to save myself and my family? Or do I stay here and risk my life trying to advance the gospel? 
I think it's really fascinating, right, that you turn on the TV and the news outlets, the media, the people in mass, we agree on this statement. Everyone is saying we have to get these people to safety. We, we reject that idea, right? We reject that the world defines safety for God's people, right? Who defines safety for the Christian? Is it the culture, the politicians? <laughs> Do we just Google search and figure out the crime rate for a particular area, right? I remember realizing I was going to El Salvador at the time when it was the highest murder rate per capita in the world. Did I tell my mom? No, I didn't tell my mom. <laughs> Is that how we know when and where Christians are safe from Google and statistics? I think it's the second thing we see. God's plan for Christian safety is that in every moment you seek the Lord and are led by the Spirit into the place God has called you, and that is where you are safe. Yes, Philistines? Are you going to die in the place God calls you to? Maybe. But you are safe in Christ for all eternity, right? I mean, go back to Acts, the speech and the death of Stephen, right? Stephen was safe in Christ as he preached his sermon, right? And Stephen, Stephen was safe in Christ as he was dragged out of the city. And he was safe in Christ as the men began to pick up stones around him. And he was safe in Christ as he took his last breath. There's never a moment when Stephen was not safe. Maybe there's something in your life right now that feels like a safe thing to flee to. A person or a place or some kind of pleasure. I think we stop right here and we just declare, if you run to take shelter in something other than God, if you hope in something that is not from God, you are not safer there, right? Even if it feels that way. <laughs> that's something we have to believe, right? And so there's only one safe decision for Ananias to make, and that is... God to come face to face with one who has dedicated his life to killing men like him. And he responds in obedience. The fear of God is in him. Look at the next verse, verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. <laughs> Verse 17, Ananias calls him Brother Saul. Look how quickly this can become a reality. God declares, I'm taking you. And God's people say, you are my brother. Instantly. Saul's mission was to kill Ananias and anyone else with him, and now Ananias has the faith to call him a brother. That's a gospel, right? And again, back to the whole idea of safety. You are not safe today because you've avoided all the murderers. You're not safe because you have a, a great health care plan or a great retirement plan or because you have a gun or a very large dog, right? Those are nice things. Love dogs. 
You're not safe because you have a recently installed Ring doorbell camera, right? And your Amazon Christmas packages are safe as long as you order them in the next two weeks. The Bible says really clear, you're safe if you belong to Christ because you are in the care of God. The God who works miracles, who changes hearts and protects his children. And Ananias doesn't fear Saul the murderer. He fears the Lord. And God says, well done, you now have a new brother in Christ. It's pretty cool. Look at verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. You kind of got to get to work, right? When you've been like murdering people and you realize you're wrong, it's like, I know you were really about works then. You should probably be about works now. <laughs> Immediately, good call. Saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. God can save anyone. God can turn a life around in an instant. And now Paul gets to work preaching the gospel, and he, he never looks back, right? He is preaching the gospel from this moment until the moment that he is killed in Rome by Nero. This is 30, 28 years later, right? Verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the story ends, and Paul is now reasoning, debating, preaching. And there are threats against his life, and God gives them the wisdom to escape the dangers and stay ahead of their enemies. But the missionary life of Paul has just begun. Paul describes his life before Christ in this way, Philippians chapter 3. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, before Christ, Paul was traveling city by city to kill Christians. And after Christ, he's traveling city by city to preach the gospel and plant churches. He traveled over 10,000 miles. He planted more than a dozen churches around the Mediterranean. He wrote a fourth of the New Testament, and he suffered like very few ever have. He describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. 
Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And what do we know Paul says? He says, I count it all joy, right? I don't know about you, but I've been keeping track of how many shipwrecks I've been part of as I preach the gospel. I'm still stuck at zero, right? It was a radical transformation, transformation of a man's life, and God is an inexhaustible God who can do this over and over again, right? So I guess we pause here and we say, I don't know, maybe God can save that one friend of yours, right? Maybe God can save your neighbor or your mom or your dad or your sister or your brother. Let's believe this together. Yeah, Village Church? And so there's one more verse. This is a big one, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Are they walking? They walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches us that if we fear the right things, we will have comfort. But if we fear the wrong things, we will be restless and hopeless and on the way to hell as Saul was. And I can promise you that Paul was more comfortable in a prison cell with scars covering his body than you will ever be hiding from your sin or chasing after earthly pleasures, right? They walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. There's a version of God that our culture creates that does not need to be feared. There's a version of God that many professing Christians believe in where he, he is just simply a resource for our lives, right? That God is on standby to assist with our desires. That, that God is very gentle, very kind. He is not a threat to anyone. He has no expectations for us at all. And theologians have started to use this term divine butler to describe the modern view of God among even professing Christians. And the solution for this view of God is to open the Bible because you can't find him in there, okay? You can make him in your own idea out here, but you can't find him in there, right? So that's the solution to it. We open, the, we open the Bible, we find what the real God is like, and we find that he is a God who is greater than that God in how he loves us and fights for us and hates the idols that will destroy us. And if you walk in the fear of that God, you will have comfort. But if you chase after comfort, you will have nothing, right? And so God stops Saul dead in his tracks, and he says, you are my enemy and he repents, and he's baptized, and God says, you are my beloved, and I'm going to send you on an incredible journey for my glory. <laughs> and so, Village Church, you should be encouraged by that. 
whatever you have in your past, whatever sin is in your past, whatever failures are in your past, you should know that God is not looking back. In a moment, Saul is wiped clean and he becomes a vessel of the Lord. And this is day one of his life in Christ. And there's so much hope for us in that. And so I want to end by saying this. There's, there's a lot of ways that we calculate in our own minds whether or not we are better off, right? We calculate the size of our paychecks or the size of our home or the health of our family or the grades we get or the schools we can attend. I think we see really clearly here that whatever the world offers you in exchange for Christ, whatever the world offers you in exchange for your joy in Christ, you should just know with confidence that that is a losing deal. It might get really hard to be a Christian in this world, but listen to this. There is no tipping point, right? It could get a lot harder. There is no tipping point where the cost of following Christ is just too great because there's no tipping point where Christ himself is not great enough. Amen? Yes. If we are the bride of Christ, then we are better off with the bridegroom, period, right? You gotta believe that. The Christ who shows up on the road to Damascus and defends his bride is the Christ who will defend his bride until we see him face to face. And if we really believe that we are united to Christ, that we are the bride of Christ, then we can declare with confidence we are better off with Christ, better than anywhere else or with anyone else. We're better off with God, whether our circumstances are for better or for worse. We're better off with God in sickness or in health. We're better off with God for richer or for poorer. We're the bride of Christ. Where else will we go? And so we believe it deeply, Village Church, and may we see many more lives come face to face with Jesus in the days ahead through our lives. Amen? Yeah? You pray with me? Oh God, we just, we open up your word and we just see really clearly the God that you are. God, we don't get to decide what you are like. We just get to receive who you are and it's so good. And God, we, we know that we are all on that road. And we know, God, that you encountered us, that you interrupted our selfish plans, our sinfulness. And God, we're just so grateful that you've called us to yourself. And God, we could be in a lot of places right now. We could be doing a lot of things with our lives. God, we just say thank you that we belong to you. May we believe that there is no tipping point and there's no sacrifice that could ever be too great that it would not be worth it if it means we get to have you. And so we believe you're good, God. And we just ask you to help us to worship you now as you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.